This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in, and I especially want to thank the Osiris Media team, Christina Collins, Matt Dwyer, RJB, and everybody there at Osiris. Uh, they've got a lot of incredible shows and great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. I really appreciate all your messages. I've been reading all of them. You can email me at Kraz plus one. That's with a Z K R A Z plus one at gmail.com. And you can follow us at, at Kraz plus one on Instagram. Yeah. Again, I just want to thank everybody that's been tuning in. We're slowing down and doing it every other week now, um, now that I'm touring and playing shows again. But again, I just really appreciate all of you guys spreading the love. And I also want to thank all the guests that have been on the show. They've been really generous with their time, and I've learned so much talking with all these people. So um, I've gotten so much out of doing this show, and I really appreciate what it's become and all that I've gotten out of it. So thank you guys so much. My guest on the show today is an amazing artist, amazing singer and songwriter, and part of a musical legacy that is so important to American music. Um, she's the daughter of Levon Helm from the band. She's also been a huge part of Levon's Barn, which uh, has hosted these legendary jam sessions. They're called Rambles, where they bring together all these amazing musicians. And I've been up there, and it's just such an incredible experience. So she's been carrying that torch, but also defining herself as an artist and evolving as a songwriter and musician. And her newest album really displays that. And I, I really love this album. We get into the making of the album, and we get some amazing stories about growing up as Levon's daughter and being around the band. So I'm excited to get into this one, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, she's an amazing singer and songwriter. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Amy Helm. You know, I play mandolin yeah. and I've played for a long time, but I've never been interested in learning how to solo on it. Like my dad taught it to me really sort of like how you play a rhythm guitar. So right. I almost play it the way an acoustic rhythm guitar just to accompany myself singing, right. which, um, you know, sometimes it works, but often I find the timbre gets really aggravating to sing against after a song or two. So anyway, after you know, I just turned 50. So after ha playing hack mandolin for 25 years or whatever it is, I got really interested. And all of a sudden I was like, I want to learn a fiddle tune on the mandolin. Cool. So I had like, a, yeah, I did a little bit of that and learned a couple like tremolo things and little fingering things that I got interested in. But other than that and Cooksville Paradise, which I'll perform for you someday. Yeah, I can't wait. I've done, <laughs> I've done nothing. So it's amazing that you wrote stuff. Well, you have a whole record uh, coming out in June, though. So it is that yeah. recorded previous. Yeah. So okay. Josh and I, um, well, you know, well, you know, Tony Mason. And do you know oh, Michael yeah. Lupermento? I don't. I don't believe so. No. Oh, gosh. He's a monster musician and person and just. What a gem. He played bass on the record and a bunch of other instruments. Oh, cool. Anyway, Josh and those guys and I went into the studio the January before lockdown. So Got you. So it was pretty close to it. Yeah. I love 
Josh Kaufman. I'm a big fan of his production and the Hold Steady, and I love the pairing of you guys together. There's a few tracks out, but I wasn't sure what were if they were all by him, but Sweet Mama sounds so good, and I can totally hear his influence and sound in that track. I'm proud of this one. And I feel like uh, Josh's production, like what you're talking about really shines on the whole thing. It's really, um, he was, he was extraordinary to work with for me. I had a great experience with it. Breathing, Running Out of Love and Sweet Mama are the three that they've released in uh, anticipation of the record coming out in June. Right. And Breathing, I got to watch a really cool video of you guys performing that in the barn. Did you see how we had the whole thing lit? So cool. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, the lit. And it seemed like you had like smoke or, you know. Yeah, uh, dude, we we took it. We took it to a psychedelic level. I love that. I loved it. This guy named Dave came down from Maine. He's a fantastic LD and he had installed the um, lighting system. We had, but we had had old spotlights at the barn that were like not good and probably a major fire hazard. So that was one of the first things we redid in recent years was to get those nice, that nice lighting rig there. Yeah. He had installed it and he came down and hooked it up and we actually have a whole, um, webcam installation now so some of that video was we augmented it with some handhelds but a lot of that is those angles of the cameras to do live streams that is yeah that's become such a staple now which is is really cool i mean especially for the barn i think that's such a huge piece to that because there's such a legend behind the barn and the sessions and the rambles that happen there yeah and not everybody lives close enough <laughs> to go there, but people talk about it all over the place. So I think that'll be a really cool element to, to yeah. add to those sessions. I hope so. For people that can't travel or too far away or yeah, for sure. Yeah. So how did you hook up with Josh? Did Is he an upstate New York guy? Josh and I met through Drew Frankel. He wanted me, Josh asked if I would be part of this um, Leonard Cohen tribute that we did a few years back and we first met there. And then, you know, I had like 10 minutes to rehearse the song and arrange it and put it together. And I just immediately loved his whole vibe. And we just had such instant chemistry. It was like, you know, when you just feel that with someone and you get a song in shape and you're kind of finishing each other's thoughts and it just kind of, and then, um, Following that, he came upstate, he reached out and he came up to the barn with Mike Taylor from his Golden Messenger. Do you know Mike? Oh yeah, I love his Golden yeah. Messenger. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So Mike and Josh came up and we did these, Josh was like, he brought a four track with him. Yeah. And they slept at the barn. This was like, you know, there was no management, there was no contracts, yeah. there's no nothing. It was just like, we all felt like teenagers. Let's just hang out yeah. at the barn for a few days. And those guys ended up writing a whole bunch of songs, um, which we did these four track demos of. And that was kind of the seed of them doing a full length record with him, which Mike, Mike was a part of this record. He wrote one song on this record called Verse 23. He wrote it and I took the title of the album from that song. So the title of this record is going to be called What the Flood Leaves Behind, right, right. which is from his song Verse 23. Yeah. Cool, cool. So that's kind of the... the, the uh, the long story up to how Josh and I sort of step took the stepping stones up to doing a full length record with each other. 
And were there a, a lot of other musicians involved that are kind of part of your band or part of your your world? Um, yes. Yeah, so I brought, so Josh has his tribe, you know, yeah, all yeah. producers and you do a lot of producing. There's yeah. like, you know, you get more comfortable with your people. And I, I love um, Ray, who he works with, who's a drummer. Um, but I just have such a link with Tony Mason. We've been, we've been playing together for so long now. And there's something about where I can plant my singing with his pocket that really fits for me and it's familiar. And um, I really wanted him to be part of the record. So that was an unknown factor for Josh, which was a, not a leap of faith because obviously, you know, Tony's reputation precedes him and people know he's a great player, but for a producer to kind of push out of his, what he knows and what he's used to. And we all got together at the barn. Phil Cook was on it and played organ. Do you know, Phil? Yeah. Yeah. It was really special, man. It was, uh, I've been telling friends, musicians that I've gotten to connect to recently uh, that it was kind of humbling to go back to the barn, which is for anybody listening who doesn't know, the barn was my dad's home and recording studio in Woodstock, New York, which he started these kind of um, legendary concerts, the Midnight Rambles there. And so I've played a trillion gigs at this place. I grew up in this place. I learned how to sing in this place, you know, I have a lot of history there, but I was, I hadn't recorded a record there in a long time and making a record is so different as, as we know, than doing a live gig. That room is humbling because there is a, that room is a tuning fork and there is a very strong muse in the rafters, you know, which of course, is significant for me, but truly all those guys felt it too. It wasn't just about my dad and me. There's something in that room breathes that kind of has a, has a pulse to it, you know, that elicits the, the playing out of people. And um, it was really cool to do the album there. It became a real harmonizing sort of factor. Can you talk a little bit about the origins of the barn and like, when did, when did it come into your life? Like when did your dad take over that space? Uh, well, he built the place. Oh, he completely built it. Okay. He built that place in the early seventies and his something interesting about him that not a lot of people know is that he was very interested in architecture. I think that if he hadn't had become a drummer from, from becoming, from starting off as a sharecropper, choosing drumming, um, I think he would have gone towards architecture and, and studying that landscape and that he always used to love to say that architecture is frozen music. So that was his, that was his great love. So he designed it and built it um, in the early seventies and based it on a lot of, um, he loved Frank Lloyd Wright and he also loved Eric Sloan who was a, he had these illustrated books, these Eric Sloan books that went into a lot of the details of barn buildings and, you know, the traditional length of the rafters and where you'd put the post and beam and all of the mechanical information behind it. Another cool thing about the barn is that he and Garth, Garth Hudson of the band, um, acoustically designed it. You know, so Garth went in there and Garth is a, for anyone who knows the band's music, you can imagine that Garth is as far out 
yeah. as you think he might be. And when I say far out, <laughs> I don't mean unreliable. I mean, brilliant, like right. living in the ether. How did he even think of that chord <laughs> kind of a right, thing? Right. So he, part of Garth's um, genius is also that he can douse for water. You know, he doused for the well at my dad's house. So he went into that space as they were building it in the seventies with all that Garth presence and kind of sonically designed the place to be acoustically resonant and warm. And uh, there's no metal in it. It's all wooden, uh, you know, pegs that hold the beams together. And it, You've been there before. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the most amazing places to to make music in the world. Yeah. It's a funny thing. It's a, one of those places. Yeah. It's kind of like being on the inside of an instrument. Yeah. Right. Yes, that's like a, inside yeah. the hollow body of a guitar or a cello. Or like something. Because it's all wood and and um, so that's the origin of the barn. Then it burned down in '91, and my dad rebuilt it um, pretty much with the same blueprint, but made it fireproof, did added some things, put a stone wall to separate a different section. And so did you actually live there as a child? Because I know you moved around between LA and and, in New York City and up there, but when you were in Woodstock or in that area, that's where you lived. I did. Like if you're on stage and you're looking up at those lofts above, the one all the way to the left was my little bedroom. Wow. Yeah. So, so were you around just for endless amounts of jam sessions and rehearsals? And was that kind of like a center at that point, you know, for Levon? And it, it wasn't, it was a little bit, but it wasn't as much when I was living there because gotcha. it's climbing, but when the ramble started, I would stay up there all the time. So there was that too. Right. So yeah, I was, I was around quite, quite a bit of that there. Right, right. And then you ended up in New York City. You went to Trinity High School. Is that right? You better believe it. Yep. High-stepping high it at Trinity. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's high cotton, as my dad would that's say. That's high cotton. Where'd yeah. you go to high school? I actually, I went to a really random small school called the Putney School, which is in Vermont. It's a really uh, interesting place. We lived on a farm. We all like had to work yes. on the farm. We yeah. all we all had to be like kind of a part of this like somewhat self sustaining community. Putney sounded always sounded like where the kids like the kids that went to Putney were on a freedom ride. Like yeah. it was, it sounded great. Yeah, yeah it was an That's interesting cool. place. A lot of really creative kids cool. there. You know. Interesting. I wonder if Putney's still around. It is. It's still it's uh-huh. still going. It's really small. You know, there's only like 120 to 150 students, you know, and all the classes are pretty small. Same um, reputation? Does it have the same reputation? Yeah, yeah I think it's sustained that. Um, it's hard. It, it, it definitely struggles to stay there. Because sure. it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting place, though. A lot of like artists, kids, you know, I know like... Bob Dylan's son went there, I believe. And Leonard Cohen's daughter was there when I was there. And like a lot of like creative people's uh, kids. It was, it was an amazing place to go. It was really different from me. Cause I came from, my dad worked in Manhattan and I, we li- I grew up in and out outside of the city, but so it was a different, different world for me. But then you did the opposite and you went into the city I went into, well, yeah, so my, yeah, I I grew up in, well, I grew up in Woodstock, then Los Angeles, I went to Oakwood, 
Oh, elementary really? in Los Angeles for oh. a minute, which I loved. And then yeah. we moved back to New York when I was, um, Jesus, I can't remember now. I can't remember. Fourth grade. Yeah. I was like nine. Right, right. So yeah, we bounced around. But then once we were back, Woodstock was a real um, home base for me. Right. And very grounding place for me because my childhood was not only physically kind of kind of chaotic, but also, you know, certainly a lot of um, brilliant and really lost people that were around me trying to do the best that they could, you know. So actually Woodstock was it was a grounding place for me because my mom was actually born in Woodstock, born and raised. Um, and my dad had been here a long time. So it felt like some kind of home ground that I think I needed. And for the people out there that don't know your mom, um, Libby Titus, I mean, uh, an artist in her own right and a singer has composer. She wrote love has no pride, which is kind of one of her great things that she can that you can say that's a great song. And right. Bonnie Waite had a big hit. With it yeah, again. that's right. Bonnie recorded that. Yeah. Um, and she was also or married to Donald Fagan, who she is still. Uh, she's still they're still they're <laughs> yeah. still married. Um, and so you had a very unique <laughs> uh, childhood between Donald Fagan, Libby, Levon. You're leaving out her husband in between which was Dr. John the Night Oh, Tripper. that's right. Yeah, I forgot. That. Wow. <laughs> Correct. So. Mac, Mac drove my carpool when I was, when I was living in LA in third grade. Wow. Station wagon. That is incredible. So you were around just the most incredible group of creators. Um, were you on the road a lot between all of these, uh, musical tours that were going on and stuff, or were you kind of mostly home-based and then would, you know, your family would meet up at different, different ways? Yeah, I was mostly home-based, you know, my, my, my dad was old school and that he was, you know, I went to the last waltz and I went to a couple special concerts, but he wasn't, you know, he was like, that was work. You know what I mean? Right, you don't right. get to work every day kind of thing. He was a little old fashioned like that. Interesting. Um, and also I wasn't, I didn't understand how cool it was. You know, you're yeah. not like, you don't know how cool it really is till you're like 30 or 40. You know? right, <laughs> you're like, right. wow. You know, cause at the time I was telling someone yesterday that, you know, from my five-year-old perspective, my dad was a drummer in Rick Danko's band. Like that's what it was. Right. Stage fright was their hit. That was the only song I knew right. all the words to, and I liked a lot. It's like wow. stage fright was the was the encore. Yeah, he was drummer. You know, I might go check that one song out, but then you know you kind of want to get back to what you're doing and <laughs> like wow, with other kids and stuff. So it wasn't as enchanting as. It sounds, you know what I mean? When you're a kid, you're bored. Yeah. When you're a kid, you're like, dude, God, let's get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being on on tour with Derek and Susan uh, when their kids were probably like 11 and like 13 or something. We were playing Red Rocks 
And, you know, we went on stage and it was like, Red Rocks, you know? And then we came back and they were like, when do we, when can we like hook up the game machine again? You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, like, Red Rocks, I've been waiting for an hour and a half to get on my Xbox here. Right, right, totally. right. Do you remember when that changed for you? Like, do you, was there a moment where you kind of like, were like, whoa, you know, I was, you know, a part, I was at the last waltz, which is maybe one of the most incredible concerts ever, you know? Or like, did, was there, was there kind of, of a time period where where that changed for you, that perspective? I had two moments with that, which was I had this experience when I was in ninth grade getting on the bus. I wouldn't take the subway. I liked to take the bus. I didn't like the subway. So I'd get on the bus up 10th Avenue and I had my little cassette player Walkman with my headphones. And yep. somehow I had a cassette tape of music from Big Pink from someone's, I had rated it from some someone's collection. And I remember being on that bus and listening to that album in its entirety, going from 21st street all the way up to 91st street on 10th Avenue. And just being just, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, particularly when Richard Manuel sang, I couldn't believe it. it was like, you know, it was like discovering him and discovering Aretha Franklin at the same time. These two singers just blew me apart. Right. And um, I, I remember having this sort of, I wasn't listening to, listening to that record thinking, oh, this is my dad and those are the guys. I had this very impersonal kind of objective in falling in love with their music as a, as a fan. And also later when I saw The Last Waltz for the first time as a grown-up, the shot where Joni Mitchell is off on mic, but off stage yeah. singing. And I saw that and that, and I remembered it. I was like, oh, I remember seeing her because I just happened to be standing there. And that is my most profound memory from being backstage at the last waltz was seeing that the rest of it. I don't remember. And it's sort of a younger version of what we were joking about, about Susan and Derek's kids just in kid land. But when I saw that as an adult, as a, as a woman, trying to build myself into a singer and understanding the the, the incredible impact of, of, of he, watching Joni Mitchell and then realizing I'd seen that in person and how an iconic a moment that was. That was pretty cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And so when you, when you were at Trinity, you were studying music, right? Like studying jazz yeah. songwriting like what what were you into at that time what was what yeah. was in your besides yeah. the band obviously yeah so i i had um the incredible honor and fortune of be studying jazz for four years with their jazz teacher whose name was dr aaron bell okay. and he was actually duke ellington's bass player oh wow he was heavy this guy was a really heavy, beautiful, soulful, incredible teacher. I adored him and he loved me. And he was my, like, he was a really strong mentor for me. And, and um, I would say too, that I have, I haven't actually thought about this exactly till this moment, but now I'm thinking about your previous questions about my dad and Mac and all of these influences, but really at that time, when I was in high school, that's when those guys were all really drifting into the deep grips of addiction. Right. And 
were not in my life very in a very present way at all, though they would have wanted to be. These were beautiful, loving, caring human beings who were really lost, which, which we've known many people. We've been lost ourselves and Absolutely. it happens, right? Yeah. But that was a time when those years in high school where Aaron Bell really pulled me in and he taught me so much music and he believed in me so much. And I loved singing jazz and studying it. And my friends loved it. And I had my, I had a real confidence from my peers and my teachers. That was a really formative um, time for me. Right. And when did you get into songwriting? Was it in that same period or were you, was it, did that evolve over time? You know, that came, that came later. I was just talking with Dan, you know, Dan Littleton, guitar, so. my guitar player. Oh, you love, love each other. He's a brilliant guitar player. Yeah. Anyway, I was just talking with him last night about this. And um, when I was that age, like ninth, 10th, 11th grade and starting to listen to music and falling in love, especially with soul music, but also Richard Manuel and jazz singers, I was very interested in learning the art of interpretation Right. I was never, um, I wrote a lot of songs when I was little, little, right. I used to, I wanted to be Carol King when I was six, I would write yeah. all the time on piano, but I went through a very long period starting in high school up through into my thirties where I just wanted to learn how to interpret songs and try to do it the way I heard the soul singers do it. How did you link up with Olabel? Was that I know there was some a, a heavy amount of time between uh, Trinity and that, but um, yeah, how did you end up in that group with that with that group of people? Trinity to that, I then ended up singing in a blues band with my dad for right. five years and doing that, and then and living in New Orleans and studying in a gospel choir. Yeah, but all of it under the radar. I never I never sat in. I never showed up and was psyched to sing it. I was very shy and I really didn't trust myself yet, but I trusted my ears. And so I really allowed myself a decade of that, you know? Right, right. And um, then with Olabel, I actually met Glenn Pacha in New Orleans when I was oh, living okay. down there. We reconnected in the city. And actually, this is a cool story. This was um, a bartender at a bar called 9C on 9th and Avenue C started a Sunday night gospel, gospel music for sinners, songs for sinners thing on Sunday night. Oh no. What do you call it? Sunday night for sinners. I think was the title of yeah, it. Yeah. And this was in the wake of nine 11 and he, everybody such a weird time because everybody needed to hear something that was promising some kind of light, yeah. even if they were, atheist to the bone like it didn't matter like right. if you were singing some music about hope right so we started doing i started going to those jam sessions with glenn and fiona and then byron showed up and that band grew out of those nights and jimmy Zhivago, did you know jimmy i didn't know he was kind of the center of ola bell and put all the pieces together and right. brought okay. us all in and 
introduced us to Steve Rosenthal and we ended up making albums and blow and Jimmy passed away two years ago, but oh, I see. Jimmy was a big part of bringing us in and being part gotcha. of that. I do remember that time period vividly. I lived in Brooklyn, you know, in 2000 from, you know, I mean, from 99 till two years ago, but yeah. uh, yeah, that time period post nine 11 was really interesting being living in New York at that time because people were coming together in a way that was just so intense. Had never been and will never be again quite right. like that. Right. Not willing, right. Like, do you remember that no one, no one beeped? That's what I remember a lot. Living <laughs> in New York City yeah. at that time, I had a car at the time. Yeah. And I was driving and the light would change and no one would beep. No yeah. one would honk the horn. It was just like breath. Because New York can be such a, even though there's so many people, it can feel so isolating, you know? Yeah. But I remember at that time there was so much more like camaraderie and the, uh, there was a, a lot of music. Uh, it was definitely a t- like people wanted to heal and and, yeah. and get together. Yeah. But I know that those sessions evolved into, you know, this band making, I think you guys made three albums. Am I right? Yes. Three albums and a fourth live one. You guys did some extensive touring. We toured so hard that I remember getting back to New York and doing some gig and walking out in between soundcheck and the show to go get a coffee and stopping and looking up and not knowing what city I was in and having that. <laughs> you ever had that? Oh, I've, I, I've had that many times. Usually it's when I wake up in a hotel room and I go, wait, where am I? Oh God, yeah. I don't miss that. That can be really disappointing sometimes. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, we did. We did tons of touring. We had incredible opportunities. Um, got to meet and play with, with, with just so many profound players, famous people, people you've never heard of and everyone in between, but all of them just, you know, phenomenally talented. And it was a great, really special time. And you got to work with T-Bone Burnett, which uh, T-Bone produced one of your guys' albums, right? That must, what was like, what was it like working with him? I'm just, I'm always curious about him because I'm a big fan of his work. So he was so wonderful with us. He was generous. He was encouraging. He, um, he's funny. He made things feel loose. You know, I, I, my personal experience with him was that when Olabel's first record came out and T-Bone signed us, you know, I was, it felt so overwhelming because the, it, it, all of a sudden we went from never having played outside of the Lower East Side to being, you know, getting put on these really big, illustrious tours and opening for all these famous people and, and, and movie stars came to our gigs and all yeah. like, you know, just maybe, maybe really only one actor who maybe wasn't a movie star, but to yeah. me, it felt like we had jumped out of a birthday cake. I was never vying for that world. So it hit me. I was very, um, overwhelmed by it and, and anxious. I think I had some anxiety and insecurity like anybody, any young person or anyone really of any age, when you're in something that feels so new and you're still trying to get a hold of your art Mm. and your craft, you know, and T-Bone was, uh, he was for me very centering just the way he would talk to us about it, just the way he would frame it to us. Like I remember saying a couple things to him 
telling him I was nervous or, you know, overwhelmed by it just in passing. And just the way he would kind of communicate was very, um, it was very, very kind. Yeah. I've, I've heard that from pretty much everyone that's worked with him. I'm curious also, was your dad kind of, um, did he have a lot of guidance for you during that time when you were like figuring out? He was the best. You could, my dad was the best, the best phone call you could make Yeah. from, from, a gig you're scared of, a gig you don't want to be on, a, a, a gig after a gig that you like had an epic fail, <laughs> whatever the situation. I called him all the time. He was the best. He recentered it so quickly and he meant everything he said. And now the older I get, I realize I knew he was right then, but I realize now he was really right. Like the yeah. older you get, you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> He was reminding me, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You know, I love passing on trying to, trying to be that for younger musicians. It's my, it's, it really gives me a lot of joy to try to be that now at this age for people. Absolutely. And your son is incredibly talented, by the way. My son loves the drums. Oh my gosh. He's so good. I met him. I, you know, what's really funny is I didn't know he was your son and I hung out with until like an hour into hanging out with him. We were, I, we were doing the Greg Allman tribute show. You weren't there that day actually, but, um, Cause I was like, Oh, I get to see Amy. And then I showed up and you weren't there and it was at the barn. Yeah. So you were up at the barn. Oh, for the Greg Allman thing. And that's yeah. when you met Lee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was like jamming out downstairs and like, we were just talking about music and like, I, I, he kept, we were talking about records and artists and all that stuff. And I was like, man, this kid really knows what he's talking about. And, um, and then, uh, you know, like an hour into the conversation, he's like, oh, well, my, you know, my granddad was the greatest, you know? And I was like, oh, now I realize we were talking about drums and this and the other. <laughs> and uh, he was like, he built this oh, place. But, but now that makes sense because he said he built this place, but I didn't realize literally until this conversation, <laughs> which is really cool. Oh, he loved shit with players. My yeah. God, my son Lee will just stick them back there with you and Tash. He must've been damn. That was like, that was like heaven for him. He would have stayed there and, and bent your ear for another three hours. Yeah. He we loves had, it. We had a really, really great time, but that's such a beautiful thing that music keeps getting passed through your, your family. Um, it's undeniable <laughs> it's just in the blood, which is amazing. I never, obviously I right. never, push drums on him. I mean, in fact, I maybe want the extreme other way of like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just didn't want to lay any burden or projection or expectation. You know, no one wants to on their kids. And right. he specifically drums. He just could always do it. And he loves it. And he's at that age where, you know, two months, they get like, 20 years better in two months. You know, they're at that age where their technique is just blossoming. So yeah. it's been nice to see it. And, and he has his Aaron Bells. Like that was my mentor. He has his mentors in the community. Great teachers here. You know, he's got this teacher, Jason Bowman, who runs the Rock Academy up here, yep, which is incredible. Yep. And it's, it's, it's the music teachers that are, that are the ones. And that's like, that's it. Yeah, I 
you know, just from doing a couple of shows there and my good friend Emily King was living in Woodstock for a while and, and Coachemia and that, and I've gotten to go up there a few times and it's amazing how cool the scene is there. You know, I've never equated like trees and like this rural atmosphere with like heavy music, you know, and heavy um, like kind of music culture. Um, and Woodstock has that, you know, it's really, really cool. Um, has that changed a lot since you were growing up? Yes, it's changed a lot. And it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate. I I'm hoping that we just have to, I think the artists in this community have to, have to really hang, you know, stay focused on maintaining the culture here and maintaining that part of the culture. Yeah. Um, it's gotten very, you know, a lot of people raced up here in response to the pandemic, but there's a lot of money up here now. So the middle, it, it's just been an interesting thing. And I've heard this is happening in a lot of small towns that are within yeah. a certain driving distance of a major city. Right. But, you know, when the middle class gets kind of annihilated, like as if a tidal wave sweeps through yeah. and then the real estate no one can afford to live here. No one can afford to shop here. No one can pay the taxes for those people who had a home who don't want to leave. Right. So when that starts to happen, the culture really shifts pretty dramatically. So, uh, Well, the barn has definitely always been an important piece um, to the culture there. And, yes. I, and uh, I think hof- hopefully that will create and continue to create or continue to create a space that's I'm determined determined to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I I really want it to, even more so now in light of everything I just said, which is not to say we don't want people up here. We do. It's a place for everybody, but it's just when you get that economic imbalance, which is, which is not always, it's not always easy to blame people for that. That happens, but it's important for everybody, especially people with means to help that stay Leveled, you know. Right, right, and they need yeah. to support the. If they're going to come out, they need they need to support the people that have been there and the culture yeah, that's right. there. I wanted to talk a little bit about how the Rambles kind of came about, um, and yeah. what when was that really? That was like in the ninety, like the late nineties. They started in about two thousand one. 2000 around there, but they were very, you know, maybe once every couple months or once a month. There were like 50 people came, right. you know? uh, but my dad was so funny. Like he had absolutely no money. He was, had filed bankruptcy. His house was on the auction block. He had nothing. The barn was like this close to being sold. You know, he was newly finished with treatments for throat cancer. He couldn't speak. He weighed about 115 pounds. He was a year and a half off of dope, newly sober, like very vulnerable time. And he started those concerts. Was it a rent party? Maybe. I mean, any money at that point, any, any hundred dollar grab helped right. a lot. Right. But it was also for his spirit and his healing and something to do, something to focus on. And he wanted to master the shuffle. And that's what he said to me. He said, I want to be the best blues drummer that there is because he couldn't sing anymore. So he was determined to do that. He put on blinders and that was his mission. And so that's where the rambles kind of came 
from that as well. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and then they grew from there. And who was the who was the band initially when he first started doing the Rambles? Uh, Jimmy Gavino was yeah. always a big part of it, yeah. and um, him and Ola Bell. We we yeah. backed him up and played a lot of those. Oh, and cool, um, yeah. Mike Merritt played bass. Yep, yeah. Um, and what it turned into. Eric Lawrence and Steve Bernstein were some of the very early ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it just became a thing. I mean, I did they always. Did you guys always announce who the different guests and the artists were going to be? Because I know like different people would pop in. It throughout. was so unorganized. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, my dad was a, he was a real visionary and he, he lacked any, he was just the most unorganized. This was before social media. Right. This was like, you know, word of mouth and maybe, you know, just kind of it just kind of happened and yeah. then well you know how it began to gain a buzz was from musicians right because the musicians were the ones that wanted to come up and see it you know the radiator that that lines right behind his drum set there's that radiator against the wall yeah. that thing was lined with drummers every saturday night there'd yeah. be like 10 drummers on the radiator. People yeah. were coming up. Musicians wanted to see because it was an incredible night of music. It was fun. It was loose. It was authentic. And he, for drummers, you know, here was a guy who was 60 in his early sixties and mastering his instrument in real time, you know? Right. And it was a real Phoenix rising coming out of the ashes and reinventing himself. And that, that is something, if you can go watch that going down in person for a player or a singer, it's like, that's what, that's what the most interesting thing in the world, especially when it's not being touted as cool or hip or something to get to yet. Right. When it's still unknown that that's going down. So that's, that's really the origin of them. You know, it was, very much about the players and players hearing it and keeping it. Yeah. I know from there, there was some touring that happened kind of based on that, the ramble concept. When did that start taking place? Cause I know like he, he got healthier after those initial rambles and, and did go out on the road. Am I right? So he, through those rambles, he um, gained his singing back. Yeah slowly but surely and he would start to sing something and I would stand and I would watch him and he would watch me we had this like um very specific communication that we had developed through the time that he couldn't speak you know he could only whisper for so long right and so we just read each other we got very very close to that obviously right. and um I would watch him and he would watch me and I would be at the microphone and I would kind of whisper, sing the unisons with him, right. trying to match his phrasing and wow. his tune as best I could. So he would know that like if his voice fell out from under him, I'd take over on the lead, wow. um, which he needed because he was, you know, he was facing an audience, even a small audience that wanted to hear him sing Cripple Creek. And right, right. Just because he was 60, however old he was, 62, 63 years old, didn't mean that he wasn't also tremblingly 
afraid and, and of failing in that situation. You know, it's a very vulnerable place to be. So, so he, um, yeah, he, he would do that. And he was always worried his voice would fall out. And if it did, we built up the band so that we were all there, you know, holding the song with him. And um, yeah, it was a pretty amazing thing to see. And also makes you feel kind of fearless, not just me, anybody that was on stage. Like, right, right. If he's doing it and he's, he's afraid of it, but he's also going to do it. And if he falls, he's surrendered to the fact that he doesn't give a shit. Right, if he right. fucks up and can't get the note out, he's going to stay in the song. Right, right. And if he can do this, I can do this. Right, you know? right, that, right. Was, that was what happened with that. It was a very, very um, foundational time and very, you know, again, I would just say really profound impact on me and everybody that was in the Ramble Band. Right, right. And did some of the Ramble Band spill over into your your band? As I know that Byron, I mean, he's kind of been within your world for a while and yeah. and uh i don't know how long tony if tony was at some of those but um so did tony some of that and leone tony leone was always leone that's right oh i love yeah, yeah tony leone was was part of part of well, us, a yeah. lot of that stuff yeah. yeah so i still play with those guys because yeah. we still do ramble midnight ramble band shows yeah, yeah um i think it informed my set list i like a good long rock and roll song. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. solos that go on too long. I like all that. Yeah. I like that. In the At least dotted in. I try to, you know, bring some of that out. I, when I saw you at the Capitol theater opening for Derek and Susan, I think it was. And that band was so great. I think that's when Tash was with you too. Oh, with Tash. Oh yeah. yeah that was a great group because we had, um, we had Byron on bass yeah, yeah. and we had Tash and we had Todd Caldwell on organ. Yeah, he's an great. I didn't know about him before. And then I also sat in with you guys at the Rockwood when you guys did that residency there, which was really oh, fun. Oh, yes. I remember. I have a good picture from that. Oh, that yeah. was fun. Nice. That was really fun. Didn't yeah. we do a... She'll love you and she'll break your heart. Yes, that's yes. Dude, yeah. That's right. That was fun. I had a really good time playing with that band. And I was yeah. Connor also there? I feel like I might, I know I met Connor yes. through you. Yes. Who's incredibly I, talented. He's incredible. I'm, yes, he was there. I have a reputation for being like, oh, we've got two guitar. Let's make it three. Let's make <laughs> Just it. keep oh, coming. Oh, the gig only, there, we only have $2,000 to split up. Get another keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to do that too, but I know your, your first solo album really didn't come till 2015, even though you'd been doing yes. all these different things. Yeah, no, I didn't make my first solo album till 2015. Yeah. Uh, this too shall light. I can't remember if that was just before or just after that, those Rockwood gigs. Yeah. Yeah. That was with Joe Henry. Who's another great producer. Yes. Yes. That's an, a really great record too. And uh, I, I hear the evolution throughout. I love all three records. I'm so excited to hear the whole thing. Um, of Oh, uh, I can't wait for you to hear it. Yeah. yeah. Produced by Josh Kaufman. It's called What the Flood Leaves Behind. Sweet Mama is already out now. Um, actually, and Breathing. And you said there's one other track that's released now. Am I right? Uh, running Out of Love. Running Out of Love. 
Um, so everyone out there, you can listen yeah. to all that now. And the full album comes out June 18th. Thank you so much for joining me. It was so cool to catch up with you. And I hope that we can play music together again soon. That would be fun. I hope so too. It's great to see you. And I'm just so happy for everything happening with you. And I can't wait to meet Lewis. You yes, said Lewis is Lewis. your boy's name? Yes. Hopefully oh he'll be coming God, out, out east with me soon. So I'd love to get back to the barn, bring the family and make some music. That would be that would be a lot of fun. Please do come <laughs> play. We've got an outdoor stage set up for the summer too. So Oh really? All right. Thank you so much, Amy. All right, Eric. Great to talk to you. Yeah, and say hi to Lee too. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. I want to thank Amy Helm for joining me on the show today. Such a cool person and so many great stories. Before we go, I'm going to play one of her brand new tracks. This one's called Breathing. One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Osiris.